Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to kick in there somewhere around verse 20, 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You know, I have trouble uh, titling sermons. I sometimes run short of titles. I, I, I don't know how to do that very well. I call this one, Good Intentions Don't Necessarily Make Things Right. <laughs> Good Intentions Don't Necessarily Make Things Right. It's funny how children can have the best of intentions but do some pretty ignorant things. I was talking to Diana about this a little bit and Diana said, you know, when she was in, y'all don't know much about Diana from this side of it. My wife seems to have it all together. She's got the class of our family. I mean, the manners, the good looks, the just everything. I mean, I, I just messed up. I, I hated to tell you, but 18 years ago, or really not quite 18, but almost, uh, the church really called Diana and let me come along with her. <laughs> but there's some funny things that Diana did, I mean, in her past. She's a literalist, I mean, to the word go. You, it's some of the funniest stories that she, they, the children in that family have told me about her. But when she was in about the first grade, if you were real good as a first grader, you actually got to clean up the teacher's lounge. Now, does that sound like a communist plot or what? They told him, said, now, if you're real, real good, you can clean up the teacher's lounge. Well, Diana just wanted to be as good as she could possibly be, and she got to clean the lounge quite often. And, and, and having good intentions didn't help her out one day when she was cleaning up the tables where they drink their coffee, et cetera. And she saw sitting on a shelf there a jar with something filled with white powder in it. And it looked to her like it was sugar. And so Diana, with the best of intentions, thought somebody has not filled up the sugar bowl with this stuff. And so she took that powder and she poured it in all the sugar bowls. <laughs> well, it just so happened it was laundry detergent. And, uh, <laughs> but Diana had good intentions. She had good intentions. She just acted out of ignorance. She didn't realize what was in the jar. Well, the next day they came and asked her, said, Diana, do you know anything about the sugar bowls? I mean, is there anything, did you put anything in them? She said, oh, oh yes, I took the sugar out of those jars, out of that jar and put it in the bowl. And they said, no, Diana, I'm sorry. That was laundry detergent. That, the coffee didn't taste very well, but their teeth were really clean. Now, you know, <laughs> children can have the best of intentions. And you can think of a hundred stories in your own life. Children can have the best of intentions, but do some of the most ignorant things. He said, now, Wayne, what's that got to do with Corinth? Oh, what's it got to do with Corinth? It's exactly what Paul was dealing with. The spiritual babies that would not grow up were doing some pretty ignorant things. 
that chapter three very clearly tells us that Paul says, you just won't grow up. You just won't get out of the nursery. And he deals with it all the way. You can't divorce this from the context that we already have seen. Very clear. Paul is saying to them, hey, stop acting like babies. Grow up. Look at verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. He gives them a command. Do not be children. Present, imperative, active. Do not go on being children. Active voice means quit choosing to be a child. You're, you're taking the full initiative in what you're doing in living like a child. The word for children is the word padia. There's several words for children. And this is the word padia. It's the word here that means an ignorant uh, child, someone who needs to be taught. So he says, stop acting like ignorant, immature children. Next phrase clearly shows this. Do not be children in your thinking. The word for thinking there is the little word friend, P-H-R-E-N. It's the word for understanding. Now, we have to understand that a child acts out of what he understands. And if he doesn't understand, his action will show that. And so Paul says, stop living and acting like you don't know any better. Stop acting like little children. Grow up. That's the bottom line of what he's been saying, the whole epistle that we've been studying now for over two years. He contrasts their maturity with some other words. In other words, if you're going to stop acting like babies, there's something else he has to say. He says, yet in evil, be babes. That's interesting. You stop acting like babies or children, yet in evil, be babes. Now, the word for evil there is a, is a neat word. It's the word kakia. There's several words for evil. This is a particular word here. I love the Greek language because it's so specific. And the word kakia is the word that Peter chooses to use in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, lay aside all malice. And what he's talking about is the fabric of the flesh. Kakia is the fabric of the flesh. And out of that comes all kinds of things. Peter says envy and, and slander and hypocrisy and all these things come out of that garment of the flesh. And so he says when it comes to fleshly evil, when it comes to fleshly living, be a babe. And the word for babe, he changes it again. It's the word nepios. Nepios means an innocent little baby. Don't be ignorant of what evil is, but be innocent when it comes to evil. Now, you see what he's saying? He's saying, come on, Corinth, grow up. You're acting like you're ignorant. You're acting like you don't know any better. Now, when it comes to the fleshly matters, you, you know you're not ignorant, but be innocent in those things. Be innocent in those things. You know, Corinth knew very little about the fruit of the Spirit of God. We don't see anything in it. If, if you studied it, you must come after the service and tell me about it. Paul never one time compliments them on anything that God is doing in their life. Not one time. But buddy, does he ever skin them alive for what they're doing out of their actions of their own flesh. They had a PhD on how to live after the flesh. Now, if you're talking about a church, it was upside down. He says, but in your thinking, be mature. Now, the word for thinking there is the word understanding. In your understanding, be mature. The word mature means reach the goal of your understanding. Grow up in your minds, grow up in how you're thinking, and that's going to determine how you live. Live differently. Come on, Corinth. Come on, Corinth. Pay attention. You know, I feel for Paul because he's dealing with some hard-headed people that just won't listen. And then you just sense the exasperation in his voice and in his, and his writing to them, trying to get them to hear what he's saying. Now, what were they doing that was such a baby lifestyle? What is it they were doing that showed their ignorance and immaturity 
I'll tell you, the context of chapter 14 is speaking in a gibberish that nobody could understand. He's saying that is nothing more than baby talk. And you know better. You know better. Grow up. Stop fooling around with that fleshly, emotional, sensual stuff and grow up. You see, that kind of stuff that they were doing was also producing divisions and strife and quarreling in the body of Christ, which are all evidences of flesh. So if this is going to be spiritual, then how come you've got all this other garbage to go along with it? Paul is going to show now that tongues, the actual speaking of languages, now that's different than what they were doing. They were just simply speaking in a tongue, gibberish. But the actual speaking of languages in the miraculous sense, particularly at Pentecost, was never meant for the believer. It was a sign to the unbeliever. This is very important. Evidently, the Corinthians, by speaking in this unknown gibberish, somehow thought that they were doing something that was spiritual in the eyes of believers. And perhaps they thought they were were reliving Pentecost again. They were speaking in unknown languages, tongues that they've never known before, which is exactly what happened at Pentecost. The difference was at Pentecost it was actual languages, whereas what Corinth was doing was just this gibberish that they were speaking. They might have even thought that perhaps when they did this, it was such an emotional, ecstatic experience that maybe even lost people could get interested in Jesus when they saw them live that way. When in reality, what Paul's going to tell them is, over a hundred years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that God would speak to Israel by strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. They didn't know their history. If they'd have just understood the history of where their tongues came from and the miraculous speaking of them that happened at Pentecost, they would have better understood that their whole premise was wrong. Paul wants to know not only was their premise wrong, but their practice was wrong. Biblically, historically, and every other way. Look at verse 21. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. (coughs) Excuse me. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. (coughs) Excuse me. I got a little something. Hang on. (coughs) I'll be okay. All right. Let's look at that passage of Scripture now and see what he's saying. Two things is all I'm going to bring out today in this passage. First of all, the purpose of tongue. Now, Paul's going to say, hey, if you think that this is what you're doing, let me show you what the purpose of the miraculous tongues at Pentecost was all about. Let me, let me explain to you where it came from. Even though the people were not speaking in a known language, he wants to make sure they understand what they were for. Verse 21 again, in the law it is written by men of strange tongues, And by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, Israel. And even so they will not listen to me. (coughs) Excuse me, says the Lord. He quotes out of Isaiah chapter 28. If you want to turn over there, you might want to do that because this is a parallel passage that he's speaking about. Verse 21 of chapter 14 is parallel to Isaiah 28, verse 11 and 12. He takes it right out of the heart of Isaiah's prophecy. And he's prophesying against a nation that will not obey God. And that's Israel. 
So you need to feel the heartbeat now of what he's saying. Isaiah 28, verse 11. It says in verse 11 of Isaiah 28, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. Now you need to know some history here, and this is what I need to get into this morning. 15 years before Isaiah prophesied this very prophecy in Isaiah 28, 11 and 12 that Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, the northern kingdom had been defeated. That's in 722 BC. They'd been taken into captivity by the Syrians. It happened because of unbelief and apostasy. And then the prophet warned that the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, were about to be taken into captivity themselves because you see they had disobeyed God. They were strong, stiff-necked, rebellious people. The kingdom of Israel had been divided into the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the term Israel and therefore they've been taken into captivity. Your brother Nick, I appreciate that, son. <laughs> Y'all excuse me? Y'all like to have some? Ooh, what's in that glass? <laughs> Southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And what the prophet told him was, I'm telling you, the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years because of your disobedience. Now, but the proud leaders of Judah, after they've been warned, after they watched Israel, the northern ten tribes taken into captivity, they would not listen to the prophet. They would not listen. They would not repent. They thought that the prophet Isaiah was speaking to them in too simple of a terms. You're talking to us like we're children. In Isaiah 28, verse 9, it says, To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? You see, he, he had indeed spoken simply. Matter of fact, they said, you're speaking to us like we're little babies, like little babies just taken from our mother's breast. He had indeed spoken to them simply. In verse 10 of Isaiah 28, he says, For he says, order on order, Order on order, line on line, line on line. A little here, a little there. What that verse means, I've just barely said it to you. I, I put it to you in such a way a child could understand. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit more over here. Because I didn't, the prophet did not want anybody to misunderstand the warning of God. And so he talked to them, certainly he did, as children. In verse 12, of Isaiah 28, he, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. Now he had warned them, you're gonna go into captivity if you don't repent. They wouldn't pay attention. You're talking to us like babies. Well, look at your big sister, the 10 northern tribes, they're already in captivity. Judah would not listen to the prophet Isaiah. Now listen, 800 years, 800 years before Isaiah, God had already warned Israel the same way. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, he says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down. Now listen to this. A nation whose language you shall not understand. Isaiah said to them, They're gonna be, you're gonna be taken into captivity and people will speak to you in strange tongues and stammering lips. 800 years before him, God warned them, Speaking in tongues in a language you have not known, a language you have not heard, was a sign of judgment to Israel. Strange language of the conquerors would be a sign 
of God's judgment. Now, that's 800 years before Isaiah. Then Isaiah prophesies the same thing. 100 years after Isaiah, Jeremiah warned them in Jeremiah 5, verse 15. Behold, I'm bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can they understand what, nor can you understand what they say. Now look at this. Every reference we've pointed to talks about people speaking in a different language to the people than, than what was common to them. And that was a sign of judgment to Israel. Now at Pentecost, the Jews that were there should have immediately understood what was going on. When the people, the disciples spoke in languages they didn't even know, but yet the people understood them in those languages because they were from all kinds of countries that were there, they should have known immediately that judgment, God's judgment was imminent upon them. His judgment had already fallen on rebellious Israel and then on rebellious Judah. How much more would his judgment fall upon the very people that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? And so they were spoken to by a language they had never heard. This is the history of the Old Testament. When God judged his people, he used Gentile nations with tongues the Jews had never heard. And when they heard those tongues spoken, that was a sign of judgment against them. 70 AD, not that long after Pentecost, that judgment fell. That judgment fell. Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Roman Emperor Titus. Over one million Jews were slaughtered. Thousands more were taken captive. The temple was plundered, desecrated, and finally utterly destroyed. The rest of the city was burned to the ground. And one historian makes this comment. He said the, the, the nation of Israel had no history for 60 years. It was such a, a slaughter when God brought that judgment upon them. Just as Jesus had already predicted when he wept over the city. In Luke chapter 19, 43, it says, For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize your time of visitation. Now let's stop for a minute. Let's just say you're in Corinth and Paul is showing you this and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I don't feel too smart right now. What I've been doing is actually not anything what I thought it was. I thought it was a sign of spirituality. But now I'm finding out that first of all, what I'm doing is not even a language. And secondly, if it was a language and it was a language I didn't know, then that kind of thing was done in a, as a sign of judgment against Jerusalem. I'll tell you what, I don't know why in the world they can't seem to get the point that Paul's making. He's, he's taken every approach he can possibly take to show them that they need to grow up and get out of this speaking in a gibberish that nobody understands. Well, once the destruction of Israel took place in 70 AD, there was really no need for someone to stand before Israel and pronounce a judgment by speaking in a foreign language to them because that was, that was the destruction of Israel. That was when Israel ceased to become what, what they thought they wanted to be. And so there's no real sense of having that at any other time. Even though the tongues were spoken and then they were foreign tongues spoken to Israel, 
and that they, they, they understood the language, which was a miracle, but it was also in, in other languages. The word heteros is used in front of the word language when it's used back in Acts chapter 2. And it means languages other than their own. Languages that were foreign, but yet the people miraculously heard what they were saying. And they knew what they were saying. But they understood also that it was a judgment from God. But even though it was a judgment against Israel, you have to remember something. God still loves Israel. God still loves Israel. Even though Israel had rejected Christ as their Messiah, God had not given up on them. He's faithful to his promise. And these are something to factor in. Even though that was a, a strong judgment at that point, that does not mean God is finished with Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, you might want to turn there because these are verses you need to mark. There are a lot of people who say, no, 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 we're spiritual Israel and God is finished with them. See, at Pentecost, he brought the judgment on them. 70 AD, he destroyed their city, destroyed their temple, and that was God finishing out with the Jews. And now we're the spiritual Israel. No, 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 no. God's not finished with Israel yet. Unless you can handle this scripture for me, and I'd love for somebody to tackle it with me after they're finished today. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is a new covenant that we've been grafted into, but look here. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Boy, what a promise of a new covenant. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun, now watch this, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now look at verse 36. If this fixed order departs, now what fixed order? The sun that gives light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. Now that's what the fixed order is. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, I don't know about you. I, I haven't lived in a day yet when the sun didn't shine and the, and the stars were not out at night. Now, the clouds may have somehow made it a little bit difficult to see, but we know it's there. He says, this fixed order is going to have to end before I stop considering my nation Israel. So I just want to make sure you understand that even though tongues was a judgment against Israel, and certainly God fulfilled that judgment in 70 AD, that does not mean that God threw them off the map. God promised something to them, and God will fulfill that promise one day. He still loves Israel. But let me tell you something else about that tongue. When the tongues came, as a judgment to Israel. It was also became a promise to the Gentiles. There was something really involved here that we need to catch the whole picture. The speaking in other languages, other languages in Hebrew, pictured to us the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is for all nations. In other words, God is not going to work through one nation anymore. He's now opened the door. The very judgment against Israel opens the door now for everyone to come in through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He loves Israel, yes, but he also loves the peoples of the world. And no longer is he using simply Israel. No, sir. He's opened the door to all nations. The very fact that languages were spoken to the Jews at Pentecost singled a turn of events. Now God works through his believers and it's open to all. As a matter of fact, it says... 
over in Romans, he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression, speaking of Israel, be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? God's not finished with them yet. And then again, over in chapter 11, verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Judgment now has fallen on them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what I want to make sure you understand is when he judged Israel by speaking those foreign languages to them, languages that the, the apostles themselves had never learned, but languages they could understand, when he did that, he also opened the door to the Gentile world. But he wants to make sure you understand that he's still not finished with the nation of Israel. Zechariah tells us that one-third of the nation of Israel will be saved in the last part of the 70th week of Daniel. Just wanted to throw that in because God has left the door wide open now. But tongues became the sign of his judgment upon Israel for having rejected the Messiah. In 70 AD, it was carried out. One day, he'll take the church away. That's my view of eschatology. Any, any surprises? <laughs> One day, he'll blow the trumpet and we'll be taken out of here. No, Brother Wayne, yeah, that's not the way it's going to happen. Well, now look, I've told you over and over again. You stay here, I'm going to take the first bus. I mean, you send me a postcard. I'm going with the first bunch. I believe it's going to be a seven-year period of time after we're taken out of here, when God then turns back to Israel and has to do all kinds of things, Daniel gives us insight towards, to break them and to bring them to repentance. But finally, the last part of that seven-week period of time after we've been taken out of here, all of Israel, the ones that remain, one-third of Israel will finally repent. The sign of tongues were repeated to show you that the Gentiles are now included. When? The gospel was taken to the Gentiles. They were included into the church. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And this is when they were going to the Gentiles. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. Now, you say, where are you going with all that, Wayne? Well, you have to explain a little bit here because Paul jumps back into prophetic history. And what he's telling these, these people at Corinth, he's saying, listen, you're speaking in a gibberish. It doesn't mean anything. But if you think for some reason this is what happened at Pentecost, you don't even understand the same premise. You don't, you're not even on the right page because the tongues that were spoken at Pentecost were there as a judgment for Israel. It was not a sign for believers. It was a sign for unbelievers. So the purpose of tongues their practice and their premise was all wrong. But then the second thing I want you to see this morning is the problem with tongues. Now, why is it such a problem now? I mean, when people try to drag it back up and try to bring it back into the church, why is it such a problem? Verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, Paul is awesome in the way he's orchestrating his argument here. And if you, if you, when we finish chapter 14, we'll go back and take it apart and show you the different approaches he took to try to get them to understand what he's saying. 
He's shown the Corinthians that although the Jews received a miraculous witness through the apostles and the early believers who spoke languages that they had not learned, but languages that were understood, they still did not heed the Spirit. They did not obey His voice. In other words, even though this was a miracle, prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied all through the Old Testament, that people of foreign tongues would speak to you, even though that happened, it didn't move them at all. It, it didn't cause them to repent at all. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians, here you are speaking in an unintelligent manner. <laughs> when the actual miracle of tongues in an intelligent languages, they didn't listen to, you think they're gonna to listen to you? You think this is something spiritual that people are actually gonna to respond to? You know, could it be with the hope that you, you think, perhaps he's thinking the Corinthians, do you, do you really think that you're impressing unbelievers with the gospel? It's obvious you think you're impressing the believers because you, you, this, this is something that you think is a, a, makes you more spiritual amongst the body. That, he covered that in chapter 12. But now if you think it's for believers, do you think that you actually can reach the unbeliever with speaking in a gibberish when actual languages didn't even do any good? He said, man, you're kidding yourself. Paul wants to know, probably in, in, in the way he's writing this, what I get out of it, he's, he's simply saying, where in Scripture are you supposed to accompany the preaching of the gospel with a speaking in an unknown, mysterious language? Nowhere. So then Paul's question would be, why then do you do it? Why do you do it? Do you then think that you're going to accomplish something with these unintelligent tongues? Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? <laughs> now Paul uses a hypothetical if. He's kind of like saying, if Superman walked in that door, <laughs> and you say, he can't, well now hold it, I'm just presenting a situation that could possibly happen. If, if, if the whole church should assemble. Now he's dealing with their worship, public worship. So it's telling you something, this is going on in public worship. And so he's using this as an example here. Uh, he wants to make sure he gives the benefit of doubt to every one of them. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues. Now we've already identified in chapter 12 and in chapter 14, when he puts tongues in the plural, he refers to known actual spoken languages. You have to remember, what they were doing was gibberish, but Paul says, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's just say you, you had a church meeting and everybody came and everybody stood up and spoke in a different language. Everybody was speaking in some understandable language to some people. In other words, not everybody understands every language. You know, I wish sometime I could take you over to Europe with us when we go and there's five interpretation booths. I just wish you could go with me to understand what Paul's doing here. And if you didn't have English thrown into the mix, that would be one of the most horrendous situations you've ever been in. Somebody over here speaking, yeah, 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 and somebody over here, yeah, 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 and they're all different languages, and you have not got a clue what in the world is going on. And you put them all in the church at the same time, let them speak in all of these languages. That's the scenario that he's painting here. What's his point? Only those who knew those languages would benefit. Only those who knew those languages would benefit. And I, when I was down in South America, I could understand about four words out of every 1,800 sentences, you know. Because there was a little Spanish I picked up, este, you know, this, <laughs> real hard words. But Paul says, if therefore the whole church should assemble together, all speak in languages. Now, you're not doing that, but let's just say. And ungifted men or unbelievers enter. Now, he gives you two words here. Ungifted is the word idiotis. We get the word what from? <laughs> I-D-I-O-T. 
E-S, is the word, idiotis. It means someone who's ignorant. Now in the context, what would he, what would he be ignorant of? Ignorant of understanding the languages that are being spoken. Then he says, or an unbeliever. Unbeliever is, is an unbeliever. And he could be the one who's ungifted or doesn't have to be. He could be two different people. One is an unbeliever. He doesn't have no clue what's going on in, in church. And the other one, he probably knows but doesn't understand the languages that are being spoken. Will they not say that you are mad? The word mad means mad. <laughs> Crazy? He's so subtle, isn't he? I mean, Paul just... Why don't you tell us what you think, Paul? He just drags the dead rat right up on top of the table, sits it there and lets everybody look at it. He said, if you all got together and everybody spoke in a different foreign language, those who did not know those languages, and then the unbelievers who would be there watching all that's going on, they would say to look at you and say, you people are nuts. Now, this would be the case if you spoke in known languages. Now, can you see the inference here? Now, what do you think they would do if you all spoke in a language that nobody understood? You think, how would they think about you? Verse 24, but if all prophesy, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, Paul, hypothetically dealing with their public worship services, and he tells you a whole lot of what's going on there, uh, deals with something here, prophesying. And if you haven't been with us in our study, I can't go back and rehearse it for you. But the word prophesying, we've already identified, not foretelling. No, sir. He's talking about telling forth, prophetimi, which means to tell forth, to declare forth the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is what he's saying. But if all prophesy, if all preach the Word of God, if they're telling the good things of the Word of God, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. In other words, the Word of God is doing a work. The word ungifted here, where before it meant a person who was ignorant of the language, here it would be ignorant of preaching or ignorant of the gospel. And he comes in. And the unbeliever comes in. And they hear the Word of God spoken in clarity. They can understand the language that is spoken. And it's the Word of God that is being told forth. He says he is convicted by all, by everything that goes on. Everything that goes on in that service is going to convict him. From the time the choir starts singing till the time the last song, and from all the preaching of the Word of God, he's going to be convicted. He is called into account by all. The Word of God goes deep, deep into his soul. Then explains it, verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. Have you ever been sitting and somebody's preaching the Word of God, and all of a sudden you feel like somebody, you're bare before God, and you, and you want to go cover yourself, and you're thinking, how do those people know what's going on in my life? That's the power the Word of God has. He says, so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. You know, Paul shows the power of preaching the Word of God in a known, understandable language. And he says, this other stuff is nothing more than baby talk. It makes you look as if you're mad. And if you were using known, understandable languages and nobody understood the languages, they're going to look at you and say, are you people crazy? Why in the world did I bother coming here? But the other way, they're brought to conviction. Bottom line is, and, I, and there's no other way to say this, bottom line is, of everything that Paul has been saying, and I continue to rest my case with him, he's saying to those Corinthians, will you please grow up? Grow up! 
Understand that your flesh and your emotions and all the sensual activities that you're thinking to be spiritual, what you're doing is you're causing harm to the gospel. And not only that, when you have your public meetings and this stuff goes on, people think you're, you're crazy. Come on to your senses. Stop acting like children. In your thinking, he said, come to maturity. Preach the word of God. Proclaim the word of God. I was uh, preaching in a meeting this year from 1 Corinthians 13, so it hadn't been that long ago, but I would rather not tell you where it was. And I happened to mention, you don't, you don't do chapter 13 unless you mention the context of chapter 12. And I, I was simply talking about the proof of surrender, and we've been through that together. And as I broached the subject, I had to give the context of what's going on. I even had to go back to chapter 3 and bring them up to date and, and what's happening in chapter 5 and when they wouldn't deal with a sinful brother. They didn't have enough love and respect for him to discipline. And in chapter 6, they suing each other to drop of a hat. In chapter 7, their family structures totally upside down. In chapters 8 through 10, that they were desecrating grace. They were using their, life, their grace as a license and they were walking over their weaker brother. And in chapter 11, when the rich people would bring the food to the Lord's Supper, the poor people didn't have any. And the rich people would eat all the food and drink all the wine. And they were drunk and the poor people were hungry. And he says, you're in no way glorifying God. And then coming into chapter 12. And I made the statement. I said, when he comes into chapter 12, he's not saying, now that we've dealt with all the bad stuff, let me tell you a wonderful, sweet teaching on spiritual gifts. No, sir. He's still nailing them for their upside down fleshly living in Corinth. And I walked down through chapter 12 and basically tried to help them understand the guidelines of one through seven. And, and when Paul talks about if any, anybody is speaking in verse three of chapter 12 and he says he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, then what he says will be intelligent and understandable in a known communicable language. Don't ever say to somebody when you're speaking in a gibberish that that's of the Holy Spirit of God. God does not initiate that kind of confusion. And then I got into chapter 13. <laughs> Well, hello. There are a lot of people out there, folks, and I want to tell you straight out. They could care less what the Word of God has to say. They could care. You know why? Because they've had an experience. And once they've had an experience, they'll fight you to the death to defend that experience. They will, don't seem to understand. Step back. There's a lot of experiences in life. You want to experience, hit yourself in the head with a hymn book. You've had a lot of experiences in life. Step back and evaluate them according to God's Word. And Paul says, I show you a better way. Stop chasing gifts and start attaching yourself to the giver. And I walked through 1 Corinthians 13. I didn't do all, all of that. I, I, that would have taken about two years, but I got the, the best of it that I could do. Sermon was over. I walked over and was greeting some folks and a lady walked up to me. That look was on her face. That sweet look, you know, when you've been with God and God has so overwhelmed you with his love and forgiveness for others and acceptance. She walked up to me and she said, I want to ask you a question. I said, fine. She said, you don't believe in speaking in tongues, do you? Gosh sakes, I just spent an hour explaining the difference of tongues plural and a tongue singular. Do people just not listen? Is that what they do? And I said, well, excuse me, what do you mean by speaking in tongues? You know what I mean? And I said, yeah, by your attitude, I think I do know what you mean. Are you talking about that gibberish? Whatever this stuff is that they babble and come out with, is that what you mean by that? Even though, though you're using the wrong terminology because it's not tongues plural, it's, it's a tongue singular? Yeah. 
And I said, absolutely not. I do not believe that that is of God. I thought so. And she wheeled around and just walked out. Oh, boy. Corinth still hangs around, doesn't it? Corinth just hangs around because people don't want to hear that teaching the Word of God is what brings people to repentance and causes people to be overwhelmed with an idea of understanding that God is actually revealing their own sinful motives of their heart and bringing them to fall and worship before God. Speaking in a tongue that nobody can understand. Whether it's a language known or one that isn't known, doesn't make any sense. Nobody gains from it. Christ is not edified. Well, good intentions don't always necessarily make things right. And we're not through. We're not through. I wonder how the crowd's going to look when we finish chapter 14. Because I tell you what, I've already noticed a little dwindling here. I, I wonder, I always guess those things. I'm always second guessing stuff like that. I just wonder sometimes if we're not having a backdoor exit by people who just can't stand the fact that 1 Corinthians 14 says what it says. I don't know. But folks, I'll tell you what, best I know, that's what it says. Bibles of no private interpretation. You can get mad at them if you want to. But let me just throw up a red flag. You better check it with Scripture. You say, what about my experience, Wayne? I don't know what about your experience. I don't know. I would never say you didn't have it. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, take it and put it over here on a shelf somewhere and shut the door and lock it. And come on back to Scripture. Let God grow, it, grow you in those areas. And if you ever need it, He'll bring it back. Don't, just, don't you go get it. <laughs> Make sure it fits the grid of what God's Word has to say. Speaking in, un in unknown languages that you've never known before was never meant for the believer. It was for the unbeliever. It was a sign of judgment to Israel. There's no need for it anymore. Israel's been judged. 70 AD, the judgment fell. There's no need. Now, if you're going to some place and you want to speak in another language to teach them the Word of God, help yourself. That's languages, tongues plural. Very useful in the body of Christ. Well, these are fun messages, aren't they? I can't wait till we get to 1 Corinthians 15. At least we can talk about death. Everybody understands that part of it. You know, we're all going to die. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.